0: Austin, Texas, I'm Christopher Schmidt, and on today's show, we talk with Christopher Leon from Minneapolis, Minnesota, in town for South by Southwest. Christopher is the principal interaction designer at Honeywell, and we talk a lot today about UX design. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Uh, Make plans for CSS DevConf 2017. Join me with uh, Chris Coyier, Wes Boss, Mina Markham, Harry Roberts, Sarah Dresner, and many, many more. In New Orleans, early bird tickets are on sale right now at cssdevconf.com. UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by yours truly. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email. Speaking of email, send it and forget it with the non-breaking space show newsletter. Whenever a new show is ready, it'll be sent to your inbox. All you have to do is sign up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find show notes and links discussed today at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at telject t e l e t e c t. As always, if you like the show, please tell others about it, and to search on iTunes for Nonbreaking Space Show. Now, on with the show. So uh, so you're here for South by Southwest? Yep. Is that primarily for you're here? Or?
1: Yeah, well, I'm here for two reasons. I'm here to go to Interactive. Okay. And then um, I work for Honeywell, which, um, like in the U.S., is based mostly in Minneapolis. Okay. The headquarters worldwide is in New Jersey. Um, but then we have a design studio here in Austin as well. We have a number of design studios around the world. And so... I'm collaborating with someone here, Shudi, out of our office to mm-hmm. do um, some in-home um, interviews, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we call them OVOCs, which stands for Observational Voice of Customer. So we go in and we're trying to learn about how people live, really, okay. and especially in respect to how they interact with their house, okay. which to many people is kind of a new idea. but. Um, more and more you can actually do it with different products. So um, we're trying to just learn about that. Okay. So, yeah, I'm kind of here for those two reasons. Basically, whenever I travel somewhere else now, I try to work in these interviews with people I know Okay. if I know them there. And um, and we've got about 90 days for this particular project to okay. learn as much as we can from people.
0: How many interviews mean, would you to so you get lined up or like, would you have by the end of the, the 90 days?
1: Uh, by the end of the 90 days, we're hoping to have... Like in the neighborhood of 40. Okay. Yeah. Could be more, could be a bit less, but we're kind of aiming to do about that. And I think I should say we're kind of on track to do about that too. Okay. So okay. there's no real magic number though. Okay. Um, but uh, basically, the person we're doing this project for, who kind of heads up this whole initiative, says, well, when you've done enough of them that you start, that the patterns you're noticing start to repeat themselves. Right. Then you know you're onto something.
0: Diminishing returns.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if if you still feel like things are kind of chaotic, um, and and you're trying to discern patterns, then you should keep doing them for as long as you can to see if patterns emerge.
0: Okay. And then and then I guess terrible if you keep on doing it, you don't see a pattern emerge, and you have to like figure out what the problem is, and come with a new theory and and Yeah,
1: right. I mean, yeah. You know, we do go into this with kind of a Hypothesis to some extent, you know, in that we think there are going to be problems in the home we can solve. I mean, okay. that's kind of the the technology angle that Honeywell wants to approach it. Okay. But uh, with this particular project, we're trying not to be too precise. I mean, it does come a bit outside of the security business, okay. but um, we're also trying to connect things um, with some of the products we do in the home to figure out, you know, is there a way that we can help people with problems in their home in a, in a more, in a new way, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way that, that isn't being addressed yet by the market.
0: Okay. Well, I'm interested in in kind of like the tools that you use for your job. I guess, I guess, uh, I guess one thing we should back up is like, what is your job title, I guess, right now?
1: Yeah. Well, my job title actually is interaction designer. I'm a principal interaction designer, um, which means, I guess, um, even though I don't feel too old yet, I'm kind of one of the more senior people in the studio. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and as an interaction designer, as you might guess, I I do a fair amount of actual product design too. Mm. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm designing things for uh, screen, both for, you know, the web and, and web-connected devices, but also just, um, we, we do a lot of uh, screen design for, you um, you know, like fixed fixed screen. I guess you would say devices like a thermostat mm-hmm. or a security panel or things like that. So I come at this from the web. You know, web is my background, yeah. <clears throat> and and mobile apps to some extent. But um, but I came to Honeywell after a job change, and I just thought, you know, I really um, want to do something different. Yeah. So uh, it was both exciting and scary because I was leaving the web behind a little bit.
0: Yeah.
1: So um, so yeah, there's a mix of stuff I design at Honeywell, uh, some of which is web based and some of which isn't. But then um, every designer in our studio does a lot of uh, UX research as well. Okay. So um, and that's the part that I actually find um, that I really like. You know, like I like my other stuff too, but it's actually a real a real fun thing to go out into the field and just learn about how people do stuff yeah because it it makes your work that much more grounded like you, right. you can go back and work on something and you feel like you're armed with good information yeah and that it's actually gonna mean something
0: when it's done right which is really cool right because i feel like someone said like i forget it was it was steve or, or steve krug or steve portugal like um I did them back to back interviews, so I kind of like <laughs> I kind of blurred them together, which is really bad. But uh, it's like sometimes I think it was probably Steve porter but because uh, you know, he has a book interviewing uh, users, but uh, he's, he talks about like you interview users to know what you don't know, like you find out what you don't know. Oh yeah, about what you don't know.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and I've always done that to some extent, and especially when I worked on websites, I would do usability testing at the end. Yeah, um, and I was always surprised. Like that's when I really got into. UX design I guess even though I didn't really know what UX design was at the time but yeah like I was always pleasantly surprised like wow I would have never figured out that that thing didn't work that way yeah without this person telling me yeah. and and I did also like the front end interviewing mm-hmm. of clients to kind of figure out okay this is what they want mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to help them like really figure out what they want because they might be asking for this kind of website, but they really need something a bit different Right after finding out what they really need to have done. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was kind of always doing this kind of work all along, but I think um, the bar has just been raised a lot higher where I work now. Um, In what way? Well, <clears throat> you know, we periodically update our VP of design on different projects we're working on. And when I first started doing these updates, my slide deck was always focused on the visuals
0: mm-hmm.
1: because um, I'm, still a kind of, I'm still a designer at heart, which, I, which for me is visual often. Um, and so I'd, I'd, I'd fill up these you know, presentations with all this visual stuff. And he'd always kind of nod and, and say, that's great or whatever, but he always would grill us on the testing. He'd mm-hmm. say, what kind, of, what kind of testing did you do before the work started? Yeah. Because sometimes these updates would happen, like, every three to six months. Like, they weren't very frequent. Okay. So he'd want to know the backstory. Like, what did we learn before we started designing? Right, right yeah. And then how much has this been tested now, now that it's in beta? Yeah. Um, and what's your test plan for when it's out? Wow. Like, all, right. all the questions were about testing. Yeah. And so, that example, and like just a lot of the other conversations we have with him and other people around the studio, like everything is about testing
0: yeah.
1: and validating that we're on the right track. Right. And that doesn't mean it can look crappy or, or the interactions can be bad, but, um, but his point, I think, is true that it has to work and it has to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, it still has to look awesome, right. and it still has to follow a design language, and it still has to have a good user experience. Right. But if it, you know, he's worried about spending all this money on something that looks awesome that doesn't solve a problem. Right. And and I'm I'm totally on board with that idea now, and it's totally ingrained in how I think now.
0: Yeah. So yeah, because like otherwise you get like uh, just you know designing for your for yourself rather than for the for the customers or. for the the problem, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think back to, like, around 2000 or even a little bit before that when Flash was really big in the web. um, You know, there were all kinds of Flash-based sites that looked awesome. Yeah. But I think then, especially, that was kind of before web designers really got into UX design. I mean, that was almost pre-UX design to me in some ways, even though... Like human factors and like the whole idea of usability really predates even the web. Like way back in the eighties, people were doing usability, mm. user centered design for products and things. I think that's actually when UX design started being formalized. Was early eighties, I think I yeah. read anyway. But <clears throat> at least in my experience, it didn't seem to hit the web much until the early two thousands. Yeah. Um, at least in my job, okay. uh, but. So how would you define UX design? Uh, I think it is a really holistic way at looking at um, how, how people interact with a thing or a service. So um, at Honeywell, for example, we, we, we look at what's called end-to-end UX. So what we're actually trying to design... And influence isn't just the actual product. Um, so whether it's just uh, so, let's look at a thermostat for example. Um, we're still designing thermostats. You know, there's still market segments that we're designing different thermostats for. But we don't want to just design the thermostat. We want to be a we want to be aware of how people learn about this technology, which is why, like earlier, we were talking about shopping and research habits, right. because. Um, you know, if Honeywell has a new product but places it in the wrong channel for for shopping and discovery, we've missed the boat, right? So we wanna design that experience. And especially if there's a web and an e-commerce experience, we wanna help shape what that looks like. Um, We're even um, influencing how something is installed. So we help to design as best as we can connections um, like electrical connections we've we've designed a new way to mount thermostats on the wall to make it easier okay um, we design even the the user guide you know for how people install something and we test this stuff right like we test the user guide okay. and we test the connector and we test packaging even mm-hmm. um, and and then <clears throat> on the on the tail of the end-to-end experience after you purchase something and and install it is how is it maintained and how do you enhance it you know is there like an upsell stream where you can add something to it or or uh, things like that so you know so that's kind of the long way of saying that i think user experience design is really looking at all that stuff okay. and not just having blinders on and looking at the thing that you traditionally design which okay. is just the thing um, and then I'll add to that, like as my role as interaction designer, I don't just look at what is so-called interactive on the screen or how you interact with a touch screen or how you interact with a website. But again, it's kind of like you know people interact with all those different touch points in a product. You interact with a store, you interact with um, a contractor who installs something. Mm-hmm. The contractor I- interacts with the package and the instructions. So both UX and interaction are seen very broadly at Honeywell. Okay. And I think that's becoming true. Like Honeywell didn't invent this. I think this is pretty true in a lot of organizations, you know, that these things are are um, like beyond just specific items and specific services. It's, it's looking at the whole
0: spectrum. Okay. So like 360 design, is that? Yeah,
1: I yeah. mean, that might be another way to call it. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then uh, what type of... Uh, I mean, because you uh, just so people know, like we, we talked an hour, I guess for observational uh, interview. Yeah. For like how, how I how I use certain technologies in the house and some like of that too. So yeah. Uh, so that's one tool, right? It's like, what other tools or like or approaches do you, would you use for pre UX design?
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, on the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. is uh, we we have a lab in our building. Mm-hmm. So we, we do use um, kind of a traditional usability lab for certain things. So we'll, we'll take in a prototype. Sometimes it's even just a paper prototype. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing this, this with some building control software last fall, for example. Yeah. Um, we had a couple people fly in from other parts of Honeywell. And then two uh, design staff, me and another guy, um, we, we you know, planned out a protocol with questions that we wanted to ask about this prototype, and we had, uh, I think it was eight people come in from different organizations in the Twin Cities, yeah. uh, but people who already used the software, and we were trying to understand what this new feature essentially for the software, how it would impact them. So we do use a usability lab for a lot of things that are portable enough to to test in a usability lab, okay. and and again, that was an example of. Testing the design before it goes into production—you know, okay. testing it early. Um, I mean, essentially, we try to test early and often. Is the answer, you know, we'll we'll do some lab testing, we'll do on-site testing. Okay. Um, we'll do, uh, you know, where we need to talk to customers, we'll we'll meet them in their homes or in their workplaces. Uh, because I do more commercial work, like okay. big building stuff, um, we often travel to different places. Um, mm. And because the products that we design are national and often even international, um, we're like there's a lot of travel actually. Because yeah. uh, we um, we either have subsidiaries in different places that we're working with and do workshops with, or else we're trying to get as much of a range of user insight as we can. Okay, you know we don't want a product influenced just by New Englanders. <laughs> <laughs> we want it to be influenced by the needs of people in a variety of different locations and climates and whatnot.
0: Okay, so I think my, like, I guess to just dive deeper to the UX tools thing, uh, or the tools, but, uh, uh, the prototyping and, and testing and prototyping, um, how do you know what to ask? Like, say, like, you, you want to, you have a new, new software interface, let's say, and say, like, you talked about that, and, like, how would you know what to ask uh, a user? Like, and I guess you assume you get a user... Yeah, a person like you get a database of people. I don't know if you have a database or how would you get volunteers to come in and, yeah. and do that? And then also, how would you, I guess, you know, it, it seems like a very, uh, maybe it's like a silly question to ask, but I feel like it's just like, it, uh, that's kind of a mystery to me is it's like, I have a problem, um, I or I don't know I have a problem, right? Right. With my interface. How do, and uh, I, I sketch something up, and what do I do from that point on? Like, how do I find someone uh, to come in and what do I ask them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the first part is how you find people. Mm -hmm. Um, That can be a challenge, but I think you've got, you know, I think part of the answer is really, you know, what part of the market are you trying to address? And, um, and I use the, like, I don't use the word market as like a, business person with a suit and tie like i used to think market was such a business term but really market is really just a group i can be seen two ways like market is a group of people that need something solved and they have something in common is really all a market is um so whether you're designing a website or a thermostat or a loaf of bread you know you've got a market for any of those things so you really have to go to your market. Now, in the case of this research project that I'm on, it's actually pretty easy because we're rese- researching stuff in the home. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, pretty much everyone lives in a home. <laughs> <laughs> so so finding people is remarkably easy. You know, it's um, like I'm not shy about asking relatives or neighbors or like in your case, mm-hmm. I knew you yeah. from other stuff and I knew I was going to be here. So... um. You know, there a lot of the mystery is removed uh, there because we just network, and one person might lead you to another person, and all of a sudden you've got a dozen people to talk to. Right. Um, now, on the other hand, talking to um, like a building manager in a commercial building,
0: yeah,
1: I don't know any people like that. Okay. So then we rely a lot on our marketing and sales people who are selling products routinely to those people,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, or people who have you know have contacts through a trade show or something
0: like like listening to your customers yeah that thing. Okay. yeah so
1: so like with the building with the prototype example i just mentioned um we got names well actually our i think our marketing people just lined stuff up for us like we just said we needed 12 people or okay. eight people or whatever and they just said yeah we'll find eight people for you okay so um so sometimes it's easy enough to do on your own. Sometimes it, it really isn't. It kind of depends on the market you're working with, I think. Yeah. Um, as far as what you know, when you're testing something and how to know you're doing a good test, yeah. I think there's a few things to observe and, okay. and kind of keep in mind. I think one thing you really want to focus on, um, in fact, one thing you want to try to never focus on, ironically, is the interface okay. itself too much like um, you really want to focus on what we call experience outcomes. So experience outcomes are really the things that address the problem that you're trying to solve. So if you roll it all back and you go, well, you know, I've decided that for the, for the group of homeowners we're interested in, mm-hmm. they've all said that they've got three things that, that are so-called problems in their home. Yeah. Um, so let's design something that solves those problems. And uh, so then we do whatever this thing is, some magic black box. Okay. Uh, um, so then as part of that, we want to address, well, how does that black box solve the problem? Like you kind of look at it from the other direction. What is the experience of that solution? And let's say there's like four important aspects of that solution that we want to deliver mm-hmm. as an experience. Yeah. So then all we're really testing is how you know, is that experience being delivered?
0: Yeah.
1: So, um, and the the reason you want to focus on it that way is you don't really want to micro-focus on buttons or text or, like, screens or even workflows. Okay. Because that gets people, like, focused on minutiae that may not matter as much. Okay. Um, and it might even get you information that you don't really need. Like, they might start saying, well, I don't like the color of that or something. And okay. it's like... You know, really, you shouldn't care about that. (laughs) Look deeper. And so you can guide these discussions much better by just keeping things open-ended and and ask them to basically achieve the goal that you want them to achieve. A great example is testing an e-commerce site. You know, an e-commerce site might, might have a workflow of five screens with a number of buttons and displays and whatever in it. In you know, in my opinion, you don't don't want them to ask, you don't want to get too detailed about particular pages and get feedback because that'll come out. You want them to purchase the thing and see if they can get to the end. And then as you're observing pain points, you can ask them about that and you can say, well, I see you're having a problem here. You're waiting. You're hesitating. What's making you hesitate? Then they'll tell you. They'll tell you a specific thing that you might not have learned if you asked them about uh you know tell me about the the button this button is it too big is it too small do you know what it does cuz then you're having them focus on that button right. and 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 missing the rest of it right so that that's a maybe too long of an answer about that but oh, no. but i think you know to roll it all back no matter what kind of design you do, I think if you focus on the experience outcome okay. more than anything, you'll still learn about all the details that you really need to learn, okay. but you'll learn about them in a really organic way that, that allows the customer to drive that conversation.
0: Okay. So uh, I can find someone, you know, a uh, colleague or whatever, to, to, you know, to find someone to do some user testing, their friend, colleague, customer, and then when I want them to, to test the interface out, um, I would just go through and say, just try to do X, Y, Z. Mm-hmm. And just talk about what you're doing. Yep. no right or wrong. Yeah. Just let me know. And then if you see like hesitation, you just, have, that's a prompt to ask for what they're thinking. Is that? It?
1: That's really it. I mean, yeah. I think that's totally it. And yeah. especially afterwards, you can have afterwards, incidentally, is a great time to talk about specifics. Okay. So then actually, if you do want to go back, yeah, like let's say you went into this being totally concerned about three particular buttons Mm -hmm. or three particular interactions on screens, you can then go back and say, what did you think about those? Did did those work well for you? And if not, can you tell me why? And that's fair, you know, but it's important to not focus on things like that going into it, Mm -hmm. you know, and that way they're more open and you're not channeling their thoughts too much. Okay. Yeah. So the debrief can actually last as long as the test we find, you know, if you spend an hour testing, you might want to spend like at least a half an hour of debriefing later, and and going back and asking about those specifics. Okay. Yep.
0: Right. And then uh, you talked earlier. I'm not sure if it's here, but like, how many times would you do that until you get diminishing returns in your data, or do you just do like you know five and call it Yeah.
1: Then... Well, depending on what you're doing, there might be different quantities of of things. Um, mm-hmm. Like when we're doing the observational voice of customer interviews early in a project. Okay there isn't really a magic number like we're not trying to be um we're not trying to do phd type research where you need to be statistically valid or anything
0: gotcha.
1: um you know we we tend to try to do as many as our time allows is the best answer <laughs> um so there's really no magic number there uh, uh I, I couldn't even like propose a a, a minimum because right. I, I just don't know. Like okay. like different projects and different budgets will will have, allow for different quantities of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think once you're in a project and you have a workflow of doing like a paper prototype, um, like a like a interactive wireframe where it's not fully designed yet, but it's something you might interact with, like in the web world, in on a tablet or on a screen. Right. And then you've got, um, you know, the product or the website more or less designed and done and developed. And then you're getting it out there. Let's say in a beta form to a limited number of people, and then you get it out there to to the whole wide world. Okay. I mean, in my opinion, again, budget per- and time permitting, you would test at each one of those phases. Right. You would you would want to learn how your paper prototype works, mm-hmm. or even your concept. Like you could just have a concept. That it's kind of sketched out and more of a bubble diagram about here's what we're thinking. Okay. Do you like the idea? <clears throat> and then you can go from there to a paper prototype and test that, and then you test your wireframe again for higher fidelity, and then um, and then you might be actually trying to get feedback on particular interactions that are you know finer grained. Right. And then, you know, especially before you invest too much in development, you might test a little bit more. And, and I would say with each of those tests, you might do a very small group of people. Okay. You know, there, I've heard as a rule of thumb that around five people is enough because you kind of see just enough right. of a pattern emerging from like a small group of five.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I don't think that has to be too extensive.
0: Yeah. I know with like card sorting, I usually just do five. Yep. And then I was like, okay, I, I I have at least something to go on from here. Like, yeah, yeah. test it again if I need to later on.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes, like, the one example I mentioned, we tested eight for whatever reason. I think partly it was just we had the time. You know, okay. like, we had two days. Mm-hmm. And we could do two in the morning and two in the afternoon. Okay. So it just added up to doing eight. So we thought, well, let's just do eight because we've got two days to do it. So, okay. um so yeah, doing a few more doesn't hurt, but as you said, you know, there's diminishing returns. Where, yeah. you know, why push it too far? Because right. um, you need to get back and start dealing with what you've learned, rather than just keep trying to learn more.
0: Okay, yeah. well that dovetails into. You, uh, so you've done the research. Uh, you've either maybe recorded the uh, observations or you've, you've taken notes. Like, how do you get that into a report? You know, like uh, Steve Krug is like kind of famous for like not writing reports you know he just oh, like yeah. he just does like a phone call usually in a one pager and uh and that's it because like he doesn't want to, i think that just is like he doesn't want to write a report that no one reads right and and uh so 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 how do you take your data that you your observations and uh and uh put, is it a slideshow or is it outplay?
1: yeah you know it kind of depends and why i say that is. Um, I think it really depends on the audience. It mm-hmm. depends on who you're trying to educate with the the learnings that you have. Yeah. So if you, you know, if your project is at a point where you're trying to get funding,
0: because
1: mm-hmm. this happens at Honeywell, you know, there's there's can be a fair amount of investment before it actually gets like the full investment. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a whole process for that called new, we call it NPI, which is new product I always forget what the I stands for. Um, But let's call it initiative or something. (laughs) But at any rate, um, there's a point where um, there's kind of a gate that you have to go through. And and to get through it, you've got to show all your design research outcomes. And you're showing that to a room of execs and people who are going to be um, either handing the keys to you to go forward or not, and so you need that to look pretty nice. Yeah. Um, that's typically um, slides and um, anything flashy you might have to uh, bolster the text <laughs> and stuff. You don't want it to be just a bunch of a big giant download of data, so that they yeah. you know are just crying by the end of it. But you do need to convince them. Okay. And put it together in a thoughtful way. So that's kind of the one extreme. Yeah. I would say internally for our teams, like just keeping engineers and other designers updated. Okay. We, you know, kind of the less is more approach makes the most sense. I mean, we want to be able to communicate what we've learned, but maybe it's just a word document with some bullet points.
0: Okay.
1: Um, if we have photos, though, we we share the photos, and we do sometimes video record things. So all of that stuff can be useful. Um, again, not so much as a presentation in a formal way, but as reference. Okay. So if someone wants to go back and look at something, um, it's been put together in a way that is accessible. Um, and as I mentioned, sometimes to um, like our vice president, we need to present stuff. Um, and you know, he's the first one to say, don't over your, de- don't over design your PowerPoint. We're, we're not here to design PowerPoints. Okay. So he doesn't, he personally doesn't want something too flashy, but, yeah. but he does want something that can be explained like within an hour.
0: Okay. So
1: you, you get an hour of his time. Um, you want to leave some time to discuss things at the end. Okay. Uh, so you don't want to go in there with a hundred slides. So you're not going to get through a hundred slides. Right. You know, you might get through 20 if you're lucky. Uh, but you want to... You know, you want them to be efficient, Mm -hmm. and you want the data to be hierarchical and easy to understand, and uh, you want to have a bit of preparation to talk through it. Okay. So, yeah, there's a range, and like I said, I think it depends on who you're communicating the results to.
0: And and the preparation, what does that mean, like, in terms of preparing for a talk before a VP? Like, what does that usually do?
1: Well, I just... uh, You know, I've done conference presentations and stuff where you do some amount of preparation, and some people even practice their conference presentations. I've uh, maybe I've missed the boat by not doing that (laughs) and uh, have made my audience suffer or something. But I at least prepare pretty well and, like, I time it. I time things. I guess I rehearse enough that I speak through things and kind of time it to know how long something is. Okay. And so I've kind of taken those practices a bit into the office as well. Okay. And uh, if I'm putting a presentation together, uh, I'm pretty conscious. And I'll even type in the notes section what I want to say. Okay. I, I don't script it necessarily word for word. But I I try to be conscious of what I want to say versus what's on the slide. Right. Because I hate it when I go to a meeting and people just read bullet points on yeah. PowerPoint. Like, I can do that, right?
0: Yeah, it's like you're driving and someone reads the billboard. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, man, I see the billboard, too, man.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I guess I just kind of take the best practices that I've figured out and learned over yeah. time, kind of in the conference scene a bit. And, and then, you know, through previous jobs. And then, because um, I've had good bosses who have, have looked at stuff I put together and have, they've told me, it's like, um, that's just too much stuff. Yeah. So take out a fourth and come back and show me. Yeah. Or, man, you're really verbose. You know, and it's like, yeah, I am. You know, yeah. like, I'm always told I write too long emails and (laughs) like, you know, it's just, it is what it is. So, um, I guess I try to be conscious of that when I present
0: right?
1: because I don't want to have the time evaporate and only get halfway through what I want to say. Right. Right, So, but there's a lot of people who are, who are remarkably (laughs) unprepared about stuff like that. So I, I think it seems not sexy to prepare for a presentation, but yeah. it's really important. And I think for designers, it's like, it's one of the most important things we do is right. communicate why we're doing stuff. Right. And I think we forget that. I think that we forget, we think that our design is always going to do the talking for us. Yeah. Like it's all about what we're making that's vis- visual. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's true. I think we have to provide context and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, Rebecca Murphy. It was a JavaScript, you know, leader in the industry, and um, she's I think more of a manager now in terms of that. Um, and she's just a great person. And uh, I think I think it was her. She she talked about uh, how um, when she saw uh, speakers, even at a JavaScript conference, just be meticulous about their planning for the presentation, even to uh, planning jokes that seem off the cuff. Ah. They would plan those like down, you know, so that when they get on stage, there's no like worry or you know, that. So it's all like, here's my presentation from start to finish. So, oh yeah, yeah. So that's cool. And I think, and uh, you know, when I first started out, I felt like there was people just got up on stage and start talking. It was a this miracle they could just like initialize, you know, instantly be able to like crystallize a uh, beginning, middle, and end. Right. And uh, and have all these great metaphors at the ready. And so, so but you don't see. I it's one of the things I, I, I don't like about, you know, uh, about you know maybe the Hollywood stuff or like the uh, that you see like you know it takes w- hard work to come out you know to, to do some stuff to do the preparation. Oh yeah, yeah. So we're missing what I'm thinking is the '80s movies montage showing the hard work. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean the trick is to make it look all easy, right? Right. I mean that's when you know it's successful is. You know, you just look natural and easy. But I think you're right. I think it, it doesn't come naturally or easily to most people. I'm sure.
0: Right. To yeah. look easy. I don't think it's. I don't think it's very natural to for a lot of people to, to stand up in front of people and, and and try to summarize. You know anything really? Just, no.
1: Well, I remember reading. There's an awesome book. Actually, I think it was by. Um, is it Scott Birkin? Who is this one of the speakers? Who uh, like he he was huge on the conference scene, going around talking. He's got a great book on on speaking, really. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't remember the title, but in the beginning of the book, he talks about how humans actually have a primal fear of standing up in front of groups of people. Yeah, And I don't know if this is his theory or he read other research about this, but it's because um, in our past, out in the wild... Any time, the, the only time that we were tradi- we were um, uh, confronted by this, mm-hmm. or one of the times, was when we were confronted by predators. Yeah. And you're surrounded by, like, let's say, a pack of animals, all right. of whom are looking at you. So we've been conditioned to think that if we have a bunch of eyes looking at us, yeah. that it's probably not safe. Right. That it's dangerous. Right. And I thought... That's pretty amazing. Like right. we we literally think that our audience are predators somewhere in our reptilian brains, right? right yeah. uh, so I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's like I think I told the last episode, or 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 maybe Steve Krug or Steve Wozniak. But uh, is, I think Steve Krug is like talking about how like Molly Hossack, one of the things she taught me was like yeah, when you get on stage, uh, just realize everyone wants you to win. Yeah, you know, and, and they're not there to kill you, you know. And, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and they really want you to succeed, and, and by succeeding, uh, is by just showing that you're earnest and wanting them to learn. Yeah, and that's and, and once they, if they see that you're earnest, you know, you've got your like you're most of the way there. But yeah, you, but you can't just show up and just you know not be prepared, you know, unless you're one of those people who can. But uh, yeah, but, that's know, a great point. Yeah. So, um, one thing I want to ask about your career is that have you always you know you've been You've been a teacher, and then you've um, have you always been in a? I guess my I don't want to be a negative, but like, have you never been in a uh, agency before, like at all, for web stuff or mobile? I
1: that's correct. I've actually never been in an agency. Okay. Yeah.
0: So how I wish I could I could ask you the question it was like my question was going like, to be comparing and trust agency to to uh, to in house. I guess is how is how how is, yeah. is in house like? Do you feel like? Let's compare and contrast to uh, the college, right? You taught at college. How was that? How was that?
1: Well, you know, teaching in college, I guess, the obvious thing is that you're trying to go over fundamentals for people mm-hmm. who you know aren't familiar with stuff. Um, so that you know, that is pretty different than day to day work now, where. Mm-hmm. I guess a lot of the design fundamentals are just kind of ingrained okay. in my brain. And so you kind of use them without thinking about them as much. Okay. Whereas you have to be really conscious about breaking down ideas and try to explain them and give good examples of them. And so like when you're teaching, the most basic things about design have become really time consuming to be able to te- teach it well. You know, like something really specific becomes a whole one to two hour session of a day or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, the other cool thing about teaching that I think really keeps people teaching for a long time is that students can be s- so brilliant and actually so good, even though they're at the early part of their careers that it's really inspiring. I think to be, uh, to interact with people who just are really sharp yeah. and, um, and really get it quickly and and you know i think any good teacher realizes that they learn from their students a lot right. you know, because of that um and i think that part is probably pretty similar to my job now i mean i i work in a studio that doesn't have just interaction designers but we have industrial designers mm-hmm. and user experience designers and researchers so even though Like I'm doing some of this UX research as an interaction designer. There's people who do that full time, and and who really dig deeply into preparing research protocols for the rest of us. And you know, they help in a number of ways that I don't do all that work by myself. But you know, so in other words, we're all working with people who are doing different stuff and uh, inspire each other a lot. Okay. So I think that's pretty similar to being in a classroom, actually, uh, because we're always learning from each other in that way. Um, And I can't contrast my job to agency work, but I can contrast it to freelance work, which probably has some similarities to agency work. I mean, whether you're an agency or a solo freelancer, you're doing project work for clients. And so, um, you know, I guess one reason why In my last job change, I went to Honeywell is that I I guess for me, I just like the perceived safety of working for an established business. I mean, I realize that businesses change Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, in theory, no job is probably safer than another job. You know, Honeywell could lay people off or there could be a new CEO who doesn't care about design, you know, who knows. But um, for me, I like kind of the stability and the established culture of a company. And I, I, I seem to fit that well. And, and um, whereas my freelance work, uh, for a time I did feel like I could ramp it up and work on my own. And actually, I was really interested in that for a while. Yeah. But I could never get past a certain threshold where okay. I could sustain it. So for me, it just wasn't worth it. Like I, I wasn't the type of person who would just go hit the streets or hit the networks deeply enough to make that happen. Right. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, and I know agencies come and go. I think agencies are actually a lot more fickle than most companies. Like okay. some some agencies just disappear after a while, yeah. or they get um, I don't know, like taken over by another company or. I don't know. I mean, it's probably both, I think agency work is a little, prob, arguably more exciting, but it's a little more living dangerously, I think, yeah. in some ways. Yeah, I think so, yeah. um, but to wrap up that comment, I think for me, working at Honeywell is the best of both worlds, because we actually have a lot of different business units doing a lot of different products that make it almost feel like an agency. And we're actually billing time to these businesses, too. So, in a way, the the actual design practice is very much like an internal agency. We have to manage a budget. We're we're proposing the budget early Mm -hmm. on and proposing a work plan and all this stuff. Okay. So, um, I find that to be very much like an agency, Um, similar to when I was doing web design at a university where I was supporting a lot of different offices and research centers, and I had to manage all those different projects. Mm Okay. And uh, but it was like working on a diverse range of stuff, kind of like an agency does typically. So you know, I think people think in-house is dramatically different than agency work, but it is in some ways and it isn't in other ways, so
0: yeah yeah, see I, that I think it's also um I, I felt like that when we did the artifact conference, it was you know there was definitely a need. The uh, freelancers or agencies were different, than... Their, their needs were different than in-house. I felt like, and it was, yeah. it was kind of, a, they're both the same, but I felt like, um, I guess this could be wrong. But I felt like the uh, freelancers agencies needed the tips and tricks yeah. more, and then um, and the and the agencies needed the uh, how do I convince my boss and the fundamentals, yeah. you know, and that's and so and so we try to do both, but I just I felt like it, that's where the kind of divide sort of happened
1: yeah that's a good way to look at it i think that could be generally true Mm. and i think the other way to look at in-house too is that there's still a range within even in-house design yeah like i described my experience at honeywell and why i like it so much because i do think it's very diverse and like uh, i know over the period of a year or a couple of years i'll work on a wide range of stuff now I did have a job where I was in-house at another organization and I could only handle it for about 2 years oh, really? <laughs> because I I was working on the same two things the entire time. Yeah. And there you have to be willing to kind of get into the weeds and really go like, okay, how how is this website that's been around for 8 years yeah. like like what can it possibly do differently or better?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you do manage to find things that you can
0: improve, okay?
1: But to me, after doing that for a couple of years, I just thought, yeah, I'm kind of tired of looking at this thing now. I mean, <laughs> it's just I don't know if I can do this for a couple more years. Yeah, exactly. So, but you know, to other designers' credit, I think they're comfortable with that and they like the challenge of, yeah, of of improving something over long life cycles. And, yeah, I you think- know, more power to them. That's great. But for me, I think I did learn that I needed a variety of stuff, and yet I didn't quite want the agency life either.
0: Yeah yeah I feel like I think I would like to work on one project or like one core thing, but I would like to look work on different aspects of it, you know if that mean like approaches like yeah, you know different things like oh I can work on email marketing over here or I can work on customer support over here or something like that like can just you know or I can help with you know some other aspect of it to help the greater good you know in terms of like I don't know it's sort of like feel like uh, you know I used to group in Florida and uh, governor. Uh, uh, I think uh, I forgot his name Graham Governor Graham I think it's Bob Graham it was always he always had the uh, job of the day type of things like he'd always and order to re- relate to people he'd always like have a different job every once in a while okay and so he'd actually go, I'm helping these people load uh, load trucks you know for shipping and so that's my job for today and, oh and yeah we, and that's so he'd cool. talk to people about like you know that, the you know the idea was like he'd talk to people to see what their what their pain points were and so yeah you know, the other day he was, probably, he was a teacher you know yeah, so two teachers that. so like so you do all those sorts of things huh so, that's cool and so I, that's why I, I feel like, like that way you get like a general idea of what's going on but um but yeah otherwise you get like super bored I have two years of looking like at the same screen that'd be kind of <laughs> right kind of hard to hard to take in
1: right but that's yeah. funny
0: but yeah cool uh yeah uh I think it's, I think it's good a good time uh how can people find you on the internet and uh look you up on the, on the tweet machines or
1: yeah well the easiest way still would be on twitter um my handle is k leon k-l-a-y-o-n
0: mm-hmm.
1: um i'm not on twitter as much as i used to be but i i still check in pretty regularly uh i guess i still have a personal site as well uh christopherleon.com <laughs> and i spell my first name k-r-i-s-t-o-f-e-r mm-hmm. um I don't update it as much anymore, yeah. but <clears throat> I still kind of hang on to it. Uh, it's one of those just-in-case things in case I need it. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a portfolio. I don't maintain my online portfolio as much as I used to. But yeah. But actually, as things become completed at Honeywell so that there are, they're in the public and I'm allowed to talk about them, yeah. I'll probably uh, be updating that with some stuff um, okay. maybe in the next few months even. So I guess those are the two main ways. Okay. Cool.
0: Yeah. Is there any questions you want to ask me? Uh, I mean, you're, I asked a whole bunch earlier today, but. You know, right. Any other, any other questions? Um,
1: I guess my only question for you is do you still like being a designer in Austin? You, you must, because you're still here and you're still uh, doing that kind of work, right?
0: Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I'm a designer. But I like designing things. I just don't, uh, I do a lot of things during the day. so like, You design events? I design events. I was, is that <laughs> designing, yeah, I guess so. I do, yeah. I love uh, bringing things together, and I guess it's called management. I guess in some ways, but I guess designing. is another term, but I like bringing the people together around a core idea to flesh out ideas, to help people out to learn more. Okay. And that's that's where I, I mean, um, you know, you went to Hawaii. Yeah, we did the Hawaii conference. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, that's the first time we did CSS Dev conference in Honolulu. Um, and uh, much props to you for running through the Black Diamond and, and back. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I was like, oh man, he actually did that. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, so, but that was, that was, you know, that was a great surprise because CSFConf, uh, that was her first year doing it. Uh, Rachel Neighbors it was her first year. Mm-hmm. No one saw her until then. Um, and uh, it was, that was a wonderful surprise. And, uh, and how well that came up because we had all these people we never heard of before, like Rachel. Yeah. speak and uh and that's like one of the things we like we loved about it was that uh, uh we just all it's double blind voting and everyone just comes together. Yeah. And uh and so yeah that was pretty fun and we've been doing it since then. Um but yeah designing I yeah, I like it. In Austin is just really great. I think uh it reminds me a little bit of Tallahassee a little bit, but uh uh this is kinda of like a boring story, but uh, uh just Tallahassee uh, exists because no one wanted to live there. Because oh. Tallahassee, uh, Florida needed a capital, I think uh, Pensacola wanted to be the capital, and then I think people in Miami wanted to be in, in the capital, and so they, they kept on arguing about it. So like, hey, we'll just send out two teams, and where they'll meet is where the capital is. And they met to where Tallahassee is right now, but no one really was living <laughs> there, and no one, because there's like nothing really of great uh, natural uh, resource there, because here you have a river yeah, in Austin, there's a river, there's... No, it's uneven territory, but it's like it's, it's a nice you know nice city. There's nice natural wonders and all so that too. So yeah, um, in Tallahassee, you're like an hour away from the beach. You're two hours or so from uh, Jacksonville, or three hours from Jacksonville and Pensacola. You know, you're about five hours from Atlanta. You know, and uh, it's really you know, it, but Tallahassee still has state capital uh, colleges, but it doesn't have that industry component. Where Austin has the capital, has it has the colleges, and it has the industries. You know, there's apples here, AMDs here, Dells here, and so I think that kind of helps fuel. Um, you know, kind of makes it recession proof, but also, you know, uh, just keep, there's lots of things happening. Yeah, throughout the world, uh, throughout the year, uh, with culture, you know, keep employees happy, and so on that too. So yeah. And of course it was quirky beforehand, you know, before the big boom. Yeah. So there's a lot I mean, kinda of like all the like, weirdness is kind of muted now with all the all the population growth, but yeah in the uh, condo growth. But uh, right. that's what's happening. So yeah.
1: Right. But, yeah. Well, and if you have another minute, the yeah. most important question of the whole interview oh, yeah. might be this one. Yeah. Um, I've read that, that Franklin barbecue mm-hmm. might be like the best barbecue in the whole universe. Might be, yeah. Um so
0: you agree with that? Is it worth it to wait in line for like half a day? Yeah. So uh, it goes like, well, if you get there, yeah, you can wait half a day. Uh, usually it's like three hours. Usually probably right now, last time I checked. But, um, and I've waited a couple of times, you know. Is there a way to hack the system? The, yeah, there's a way. So, so let me tell you the story. Like the first story is like, yeah, you waited half a day and then you get the meat, and you're like, oh, you sit down and you look at it. It's like, what? Yeah. I just waited. I just blew a half a day waiting for this and then you eat it and it melts in your mouth and you're like yeah this is good <laughs> and then for the next like you know for the rest of your meal you're like enjoying this and you're like yeah you know like the whole pain of of waiting is just <clears throat> evaporated." you don't even think about it yeah after that so uh there used to be a way to hack the system uh you actually order a head and say like in the minimum uh, order was like uh, five pounds of brisket and uh and then you could pick it up like the next day or next week, and show up at ten thirty oh. with a cooler and just you know, or like they give you like a hot you know sort of hot. Um, but then people started hacking that pretty bad, and so now last time I checked, is that you have to log on on a certain day. They could have just could change on like the first Tuesday every month, and then set your date and email when you want your uh, your your order. And if they can't <laughs> make it, they'll email you, but they'll tell you like, what well, about it. So, wow. And there's a whole, <laughs> so there's, there's the front store Franklin's and now there's a back, uh, Franklin's whose main mission is to handle those type of orders. Okay. Yeah. So before you actually have to go to the front door, but now there's like a little food truck in the back where like, and I did that for, I think for Christmas or Thanksgiving last year or some sort of Christmas seasonal break. And yeah, I had to wait like 40 minutes with all the other people just, waiting on my own our own special line for that you know and so, wow yeah so it is really good and so um, I, I need to try more barbecue places but uh, our usual is like the McDonald's of great barbecue is Rudy's which I think you've been to yes Rudy's, Rudy, Rudy's is great yeah and so that because there's lots more locations in town around town and then the one I go to is called uh, Smitty's and that's uh, probably 45 minute drive half an hour drive from here okay and uh uh it's really just great it's just uh um but they close around five or six every day or something like that hmm. and uh but yeah, that's close closest i've come to like franklin's level but there's no way because like franklin's is like uh i think they take like uh they age the meat for two weeks and i don't think i, I don't see a lot of other barbecue places aging meat that wow. long. and so
1: well, good to know. I don't know if I'm going to make it to Franklin's or not. But <laughs> so, yeah, if, if it, not this trip, another one.
0: Yeah, and then I bet they've been been slammed with all the South by parties too, trying to get all those all those VIP parties, which we're, we're not invited to again. I so, don't. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you could be. I'm not going to speak out uh, of turn for you. But, no, no, I'm not. Uh, so, <laughs> so, I'm pretty sure Franklin's right there for the best VIP parties at South by. So, cool. Oh, that's a good question. Hopefully, I didn't bore you with my barbecue answer.
1: Oh, absolutely not.
0: Okay. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for for being on the show.
1: Thank you.